down to earth on News Talk with a Monday, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, we take a walk on the wild side to explore Ireland's nature and wildlife. Professor Jane Stout presents the state of our biodiversity crisis. Parag Fogarty and Johnny Hansen explain how we could rewild the island of Ireland. UK Wildlife Trust CEO Craig Bennett reveals how people are waking up to the importance of nature. And Norman Crowley is my guest this week for My Green Life, where he'll share what inspired him to become an environmental entrepreneur. It's time to head down to earth. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But now, with Ireland declaring a biodiversity emergency less than two years ago, it's time to find out just how much of a crisis our natural environment is in. My first guest is an internationally renowned expert on pollination and biodiversity based at Trinity College Dublin. Professor Jane Stout is also co-founder of the Irish Forum on Natural Capital and the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan. Jane, I don't know how you find the time to do all this. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Cara. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Jane, it's been reported that we're in the middle of the planet's sixth mass extinction event where species are becoming extinct hundreds of thousands of times faster than at the start of the 20th century. So in simple terms, what's happening globally to cause this and how much do we need to worry about it? Um, yeah, so you're right. The, the loss of biodiversity is something that has really come to the fore. It's come to people's attention, particularly in the last couple of years. When we talk about biodiversity, it's the variety of life. We're talking about the variety of species, the variety of habitats, and we're losing them, and we're losing them at a rapid rate. So what we found, uh, the Global Review has found that 75% of the land surface of Earth has been significantly modified by humans, and this is contributing to those rapid um, extinction rates that you you mention. In Ireland, 85% of our protected habitats are actually in unfavourable condition. So what this means is that our habitats that have been protected because they are important for nature, because they're important for biodiversity, aren't in good condition. And these are our protected habitats. In the wider countryside on farmland, increased intensity of farming has led to species loss and things like the Common Agricultural Policy haven't helped um, over the last few years. In terms of our species in Ireland, we've got about 31,000 species, only about 10% of those have been assessed for their conservation status, so only about 10% of species do we actually know enough about them, but of those species, one in five are at risk of extinction, which is, is huge, 20% of our species in Ireland um, that have been assessed at risk of extinction, and in some groups it's even worse, so in the bees, the group that I'm interested in, uh, one third of species are at risk of extinction. So it's not just that this is being driven by agricultural intensification, although that is one big driver both here in Ireland and globally, but other things, including climate change, including novel pests and diseases, including introduced species, all of these things contribute to this loss of biodiversity. So officially, the Irish government declared a national biodiversity emergency in May of 2019, but no one really seems to be panicking about this as far as I can tell, even though the statistics that you're presenting are shocking. Why do you think nobody's reacting to the extent that maybe they should? I think the, the biodiversity crisis has become lost a little bit in the, the narrative about climate and the climate crisis. And certainly the two are very interlinked and related to one another. And I think it's because biodiversity, nature, that, that variety of life has always been there. It's, 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 it's essential to us. It's our life support system. And I think the idea that it's being lost is, is almost too, too difficult to comprehend. Um, you know, we understand that nature is important. It underpins our food production, nutrient cycles, water cycles, but diversity in nature is what's important. And that's what means that these systems function more efficiently, um, that's what protects us against extremes of climate and buffers climate change. That's what's important for our physical and mental health and well-being. And so this loss of nature increases 
risks of, of, of all sorts of problems to humanity. Um, and it's just, it, it's trying to get that message across without sounding too negative, without sounding too doom and gloom the whole time. It's, it, it's quite difficult because it's such an enormous problem. You said that we've only assessed 10% of the 31,000 species that we know we have in Ireland. So it seems like we're missing a lot of information, but how could we actually resolve the biodiversity crisis here? So in terms of what we can do, I mean, it's it's not just knowing about where everything is or what status everything's in. Obviously, we do need more data. We do need more information. But it's about people changing their attitudes. So it's about um, recognizing the value of nature. Um, and this is ordinary citizens. This is businesses. This is government. Um, recognizing the value of nature and, and making its importance more visible in everyday life. So thinking about how our behavior, how our consumption affects uh, both nature in our own backyards, um, you know, we can think about how we manage our own our own pieces of, of the planet, but also in terms of what we consume, what we buy, where does it come from, what's the impact of production on biodiversity. And I think everybody needs to, to start to become more aware of this. Um, and we need to do our bit and spread the word a bit more. You've been quite successful in spreading the word by co-founding the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan in 2015. And it was designed to protect pollinating species like birds and or, sorry, butterflies and bees and moths and uh, it's an amazing set of resources that I refer to both for my work and even just for making my home garden more nature friendly. But what drove you to establish the pollinator plans and with no government support, I believe? It was it was really the statistics. So I mentioned earlier that one third of bee species are at risk of extinction in Ireland. And that just that that's just an absolutely huge proportion um, of our, our native bee species. So we have 100 species in Ireland, one third of those at risk of extinction. And I think that really just stimulated to say us to say, you know, we've got to do something about this. We, we're not being asked to do this by the government. We're not being told we need to do this. We, we just we just felt compelled to do something. And I think that kind of that bottom up. Um, development of the plan from the ground meant that it was both something you know that we were very passionate about and we put lots of effort and enthusiasm into but also it resonated with a lot of people and so you know when we started we actually started in 2014 we published the first plan in 2015 and we've just been um, amazed actually by the the amount of buy-in by the the success that it's had um, and really this this working together and linking up on the ground initiatives and working with a range of people across sectors has what's really contributed to the success of the plan you're listening to down to earth on news talk my guest is Professor Jane Stout of Trinity College Dublin. Jane, the pollinator plans have been available for the past five years. What kind of impacts have you seen from the initiative? It's been incredible, actually. So we now have more than half of the councils across Ireland formally partnered and agreed to take action for pollinators. We've got, I think, nearly now about 300 business supporters. We've got um, a huge, huge input from uh, local communities, particularly through the, the, the tidy towns. We've got schools that are interested. Um, so we've seen this massive impact. And what this has resulted in is actions for pollinators on the ground across the length and breadth of Ireland. So we've seen restoration of habitat, we've seen provision of floral resources, provision of places for, for pollinating insects to live, and we've seen that shift in attitude and behaviour. So it's just incredible, really. This year you're developing new versions of the plan. Why do you think this is necessary and what's going to be different about these new plans? Yeah, so this, the first phase finished in 2020, so we're launching the second phase um, towards the end of next month. Um, and I think the point is that, you know, we've done we've five years of, of action, we've five years of, of people coming on board, um, but it's still, you know, we're still seeing insects decline. We're still seeing uh, bumblebees, even common species of bumblebees are still in decline. So we, there's obviously, there's still more to do. Um, and so the next phase of the pollinator plan will have more partners, more actions, uh, it's got more support. Uh, we've got more interna interaction internationally, so linking in with the European Pollination Initiative. We've got more people on board. We hope to produce more nuanced guidance regarding actions uh, to keep monitoring what's being done and to, you know, from my point of view, keep doing the science to provide the evidence base for these actions and for the success of these actions. Well, listeners, if you're as inspired by Professor Jane Stout as I am and keen to do more in your own world to tackle the biodiversity crisis, you can check out pollinators.ie for a plan tailored to your own community's needs. 
My thanks to Professor Jane Stout for contributing to this episode of Down to Earth. Coming up, Podrick Fogarty and Johnny Hansen give us some interesting solutions to tackle Ireland's biodiversity emergency. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Went to the Apollo, you should have seen him go, go, go. They said, hey, sugar, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Lou Reed taking a walk on the wild side there as we welcome you back to Down to Earth here on News Talk with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. We heard from my last guest just how big a crisis nature is facing, but my next guests have explored some novel solutions to the problem. Parag Fogarty is a campaign officer for Irish Wildlife Trust and author of Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature. And Dr. Johnny Hansen is a community farmer and big cat conservationist based in County Antrim, Northern Ireland. Welcome to the show, Parag and Johnny. Thank you, Eric. Parag, your, your book, Whittled Away, is one I've frequently given as a gift because it does such an amazing job of depicting what Ireland used to look like compared to today. And when you described my favorite part of the country, you wrote, loving Connemara is a bit like being in a difficult marriage. You want it to work, but you can't ignore the stale banality, the ugly neglect, or the resentment that comes from opportunity bitterly lost. Now, I love that metaphor, but what did you mean by that? Um, I think we've all grown up being told that the Irish landscape is beautiful and picturesque and uh, and we've all believed that no matter how much abuse we seem to pour on it so if you drive through somewhere like Connemara today first of all you won't see very many trees uh, even though there should be lots of trees you know in any kind of a natural ecosystem scenario we have quarries we have industrial plantations we have one-off houses I mean we've really thrown the kitchen sink at Connemara and yet t- tourists uh, throng there and, uh, and, and see it as this beautiful scenic place, even though it's ecologically collapsed. This month, we had reports of over 30 gorse fires across County Kerry alone, in addition to fires in the uplands of places like County Wicklow. And it's all ahead of this March 1st cutoff point under the Wildlife Act for burning scrubland. So what exactly is going on here? And how is this any different than the international burning and the intentional burning we saw in the Amazon rainforest last year? So it's yes. Yeah, so this is uh, related to uh, the presence of sheep on our mountains. So we have an awful lot of sheep on our mountains, and in order for those sheep farmers to get uh, state subsidies, which they all rely on because sheep farming doesn't make any money, they have to keep their land in what's called eligible condition. And uh, basically, the quickest way to get it eligible is to set it on fire. And this has been going on now for for uh, in my memory, anyway, so over 10, 15 years, and it's caused absolute uh, devastation to the uplands. And you're right, I mean, this is absolutely no different to the destruction of the Amazon or the, the wildfires we've seen in Australia in recent years. It's, it's uh, horrific stuff. Johnny, you're a farmer in County Antrim, but you're also a big cat conservationist. And like Parag, you've started a conversation about the reintroduction of large predatory animals like lynx, wolves and bears on the island of Ireland. Why do you think we need to reintroduce these kind of species? That's right. So last Friday, we launched a short documentary that I'd made at the Northern Ireland Science Festival on their YouTube channel. Looking at the issue of wolves and lynxes and bears, oh my, the case for and against reintroducing these animals to Ireland. And there's really two aspects to the case for it. One is the ecological aspect that these animals in a healthy functioning ecosystem bring balance in a way that humans trying to manage it cannot. And so they are really better at managing nature than we are as human beings. But then the other dimension, of course, in terms of making that work is the human dimension. And that is really the tricky bit. So the the nature bit in terms of finding places and spaces for these animals is certainly possible, I think, on the island of Ireland. But it's the human nature bit that poses the real tricky questions. So has this been done successfully anywhere else? It's like rewilding in general, of which reintroducing large predators is a component of it. It's something that's taken hold right across the world and especially right across Europe, because in Europe we have decimated our populations of large carnivores over the last hundreds 
and thousands of years. And for example, the Swiss have successfully reintroduced links. That was a couple of decades ago, but there's a really interesting phenomenon going on in the Eastern part of the Netherlands at the moment. And in 2019, wolves bred in Holland for the first time in almost 200 years. So when you give nature a chance, when you give large predators a chance, they will come back. The crucial difference in Holland is that they're walking across the border from Germany, albeit with some help from Dutch conservationists. So that makes it a recolonization rather than a reintroduction. Bringing animals like that back to Ireland would involve people bringing them back. And again, that's where it gets complicated. Parag, you had a bit about this in your in your book, Whittled Away, and I think you mentioned uh, the the impact of Yellowstone on reintroduction of wolves. Can you explain more about what happened there? Yes, so in uh, the United States, like in Europe, uh, predators were seen as vermin and were exterminated. Uh, and I think wolves practically went extinct in the lower uh, 48 states in America. And in the 1990s, wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park. And what happened after was absolutely phenomenal. It showed that wolves, you know, we'd expect them to have attacked and eaten the deer, but people didn't expect the cascading effect that that was going to have throughout the whole ecosystem. The trees came back, the beavers came back, the bears and the eagles fed on the carcasses, the rivers started to change shape. And so it kind of emphasized the absolutely indispensable role that top predators play in an ecosystem. Johnny, you mentioned the the human element, and I think you have a very unique personal experience having grown up in Malawi and then County Antrim. So what do you think would be required to introduce large predatory species back to the island of Ireland based on your personal experience? Well, on top of the sort of natural science baseline, which would look at the quantity of habitat available and the quality of habitat available in terms of available prey species and the like, and that may involve reintroduction of prey species too. In terms of the human dimensions, which is my particular area of interest and expertise, it really would involve practically extensive consultations with stakeholders, particularly farmers and landowners, probably some sort of trial first with uh, suitable species such as has been proposed in the UK recently. But it's worth drawing attention, I think, just to how predator reintroductions in many ways are like politics. In both cases, perception is reality. The reality of large predators is that they rarely pose a danger to people. They're far more scared of us than we are of them. But the perception, because of our evolutionary past, because of the fairy tales that the big bad wolf is gonna eat our granny, and those are now streamed into our TV screens via Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, and all the rest of it, they're global blockbusters. The perception, as Parag also referred to earlier, is that these animals are the baddies. They are vile, they are vicious, they are out to get us. And so tackling that perception right around the world and in Ireland would be really key to any sort of discussion about potential reintroduction. Parag, both your book and your new podcast, Shaping New Mountains, focus on solutions to this crisis in nature, and you've referred to Ireland's environment as paradise waiting to happen. So what needs to happen to create this paradise? Oh, I think uh, I think the most important thing that needs to happen is that uh, we need a change in our values. Um, and we've seen changes in our values in Ireland before on major social issues. So I don't think that is impossible. But what that means is that we need to see ourselves as part of nature. Um, part of the whole debate, as Johnny alluded to about wolves, was that they were seen as the enemy, uh, as the frontier against progress. And, you know, we've done to wolves what we have now pretty much done to nature of, of all kinds, whether it's bees or curlews or freshwater pearl mussels, you name it. Um, so we have to we have to adopt a new attitude to nature uh, that is coexistence, uh, not just between people and wolves, but with people and the rest of the, uh, the non-human world. And I think if we can do that, if we can form that, uh, basically I'm talking about a new loving relationship that recognizes our place within the biosphere, then we can, you know, then I think bringing back wolves will be the easy part. You've said that the real failing for nature lies with politicians who see conservation as a threat rather than an opportunity. So what are the opportunities for conserving or rewilding here in Ireland? 
Well, I think the, the landscape is absolutely bursting with, with opportunities. And uh, I think particularly in our uplands, uh, if we can get over this fire stuff, if we can get over this policy of, you know, penalizing farmers for having uh, bushes and trees on their land, then we could really see an absolute transformation in our landscape for the better. I mean, there's practical opportunities as well in terms of climate mitigation, water quality, huge amenity. I think the COVID crisis has really underlined the poor access we have in Ireland uh, to nature. And of course, there's huge desire there to have access to nature. Uh, but we just need an awful lot more of it. Well, my thanks to Park Fogarty and Dr. Johnny Hansen for helping us to reimagine Ireland's natural environment. Now, just a reminder that in a few minutes, we'll be talking to Norman Crowley about his green life, where he'll share what inspired him to become an environmental entrepreneur. But before that, my next guest and I have a long history working together as part of Friends of Earth Europe. But Craig Bennett has since become the CEO of the Wildlife Trust, a federation of 46 wildlife conservation charities across the United Kingdom, all dedicated to bringing nature back into local areas. Welcome, Craig. Hi, Carla. Very good to catch up again. You too. Craig, you and I have spent a good chunk of our lives focused on tackling the climate crisis with Friends of the Earth, but now you're completely focused on nature and wildlife. And I'm often struck that some of the solutions to climate change that we used to advocate for, like renewable energy or transport projects, can have a damaging effect on nature. So are you finding yourself now on the opposite side of the fights for climate action in an effort to defend nature? No, not at all, really. I mean, actually, Carl, one of the reasons I took this job uh, is because it's long frustrated me that even in the environmental community, sometimes climate and nature, climate change and the loss of nature are seen as different problems. I mean, they're really not. They're both basically just slightly different uh, symptoms of the same problem, which is that as humanity, we haven't yet worked out how to live fairly within environmental limits. And if you look at it, you know, there really are no long term solutions to the climate emergency uh, that uh, can be done differently from tackling the climate, uh, the ecological emergency. I mean, these two things are intrinsically linked. You cannot solve the climate emergency without also solving the ecological emergency. And you cannot address the ecological emergency without solving the climate emergency that we've got to solve them both together. And so uh, one of the reasons I was so keen to take this job is to to really dial up the kind of connections between the two and make sure we find solutions that work for solving both of these problems. But, you know, we've seen examples like the high-speed rail line that's going through the UK right now where they're potentially destroying tons of woodland forest. Or here in Ireland, we have a Bus Connects project where they're going to have to take down trees to to widen the bus lanes. So, you know, are, we, are you not seeing where sometimes we can want to try and solve climate change but actually we're really harming nature at the same time. Yeah, well, actually, that those are just examples about how climate, so-called climate solutions being done badly, um, and therefore they won't help solve the climate. I mean, taking taking HS2, high-speed two uh, railway line in uh, uh, going up the west coast of the UK, for example. I mean, yes, of course, instinctively, I like high-speed rail. Of course, I want to see high-speed rail replacing a lot of short-haul uh, air flights. But the problem is, is the UK government has done HS2 so badly, it won't even be good from a climate point of view. It's estimated from, from some calculations that, you know, it's going to have a, uh, there's going to be a carbon cost to HS2 because it's lots of steel, lots of cement, which also has a big carbon footprint. And it will probably take up to 60, 70 years before there's any kind of payback in reducing emissions. And even then, that's a big assumption. We're sort of assuming that HS2 is going to stop um, people flying. But I mean, it's only going to do that if that's part of a coherent transport strategy for the UK. How, how is it going to do that if at the same time as building HS2, they want to build new runways at Heathrow? And in fact, HS2 now looks to be much more about trying to get business travellers to airports fast rather than actually making it um, uh, replacing flight. So actually, you know, you look at these issues holistically. Uh, yes, you could be build a high speed railway line in a way that actually works for tackling climate change and works for the ecological emergency. Maybe it might be a little bit slower and the line could bend a little and then it doesn't have to go through over 100 ancient woodlands, for example. And if you really think about it, most of the problems we face in life as society, and then there's a big sweeping statement, but most of the problems we face in society and certainly around anything to do with the environment 
come from people having developed solutions with kind of blinkers on and not seeing the whole picture. And I think what we have to embrace in the environmental community is make sure that we look for holistic solutions that don't just create new problems. So what are some examples that you'd like to see where we can protect both climate and nature at the same time? Well, another good example is offshore wind farms. I mean, I've always been kind of enthusiastic, of course, about uh, renewable energy and absolutely remain so and enthusiastic about getting renewable energy out of the marine environment. But I mean, um, you could you could build offshore wind farms in a way that's devastating for the marine environment. And then actually it won't be good for climate either. I mean, the marine environment is one of the most important natural climate solutions. Uh, if actually we can restore the abundance of marine species, not least fish, but also particularly the kind of what's called the benthos layer, the layer at the bottom of the uh, on the seabed, that's really important for sucking carbon out the air. And uh, it's actually one of the most important ways in which historically uh, the earth has regulated uh, the climate. If actually we build onshore wind, uh, offshore wind farms in a way that destroys that, that layer, um, actually makes it harder for us to restore the abundance of, uh, in the marine environment, then it's not going to be a very good climate solution either. So there's so many other uh, examples I could give here. Uh, we just need to make sure that we see the whole picture when we're implementing these. As, as ever, Kara, you know, anyone that thinks that the solution is a simple tech fix is normally got it wrong and doesn't fully understand the complexities of the environment and, and the need to find solutions that work across all of these concerns. The United Nations has called this the decade of restoration to protect nature and restore ecosystems worldwide. So how do you think that developed countries like the UK and Ireland can actively participate in that kind of global ambition? I think it's so critically important that developed countries like the UK and Ireland and others really lead the way on this. I mean, you know, the Industrial Revolution started, say, in the UK and across Western Europe. You know, we cleared our forests, we dug up coal, we burnt that, and that's how we uh, developed and uh, got rich as countries. It is absolutely clear to me that the next stage of human progress surely is learning to live fairly with environmental limits. And ask yourself this question, if it's not that, what is it? Because all the scientists are pretty clear that there isn't another stage of human progress unless we learn to live fairly within environmental limits. And that doesn't mean just kind of tr trying to live neutrally the way we are now. Actually, that means restoring and repairing some of the damage we've done to the environment. Uh, the UK, for example, is one of the most nature depleted countries anywhere in the world. I mean, we've lost even in, in my lifetime. I'm, I'm not quite 50 years old yet, believe it or not. And even in my time, uh, we've seen uh, almost half of the insect populations in the UK uh, disappear. The abundance, you know, often we talk about species extinction, which is obviously a huge concern, but actually almost uh, just as devastating is the loss of abundance of our wildlife species. And guess what, Carl, believe it or not, that's all carbon as well that's gone from the biosphere into the atmosphere. And so um, we often for sort of to give you an idea about how significant this is, if you, if you think about how the climate has changed naturally in the past, Actually, that has been because of the, you know, the so-called flux of carbon going from the biosphere into the atmosphere and back again. Uh, when you had in the ice ages and you had uh, uh, obviously sea levels much lower than they are now and ice covering in all the latitudes, but the, the world was a lot colder and that meant that the, there was much less carbon in the atmosphere. So where did all the carbon go? Well, it actually went, most of it went into the marine environment, into marine biodiversity, into fish and, and plankton and so on, which died, that sunk to the bottom of the sea. And the clues in the name, then they got trapped in fossil fuels. You know, actually the link between biodiversity and climate is staring us in the face with the phrase fossil fuels. You know, if we can't restore the abundance of nature on this planet, then we haven't actually got a hope of tackling climate change. That's a really good point. Here in Ireland, climate action is getting a lot more attention in our current government than in the past, but not much is being done for nature yet, even though we've declared a climate and biodiversity emergency. Are you having the same experience in the UK with more resistance to rewilding than for climate action now? Um, 
I, I think what is interesting is I think the, the rhetoric has certainly in the UK has moved to a much more positive space around restoring nature. Um, it's uh, people kind of accept now, I think, the need to do that. I think there is a there is a much greater acceptance now and understanding that the situation we're in now is one where nature is depleted and the, the job cannot just be about trying to slow the decline of nature, which I think historically is how even conservationists have framed it for like 100 years with, you know, trying to protect the last bits. We all know now that's not enough. We actually have to reverse the declines of nature and put it into recovery. And that is actually the official position of the UK government now. And um, I actually think, you know, to give him a tiny bit of credit but even now prime minister boris johnson i think he he, he he does instinctively get this and he kind of believes in it has that then flowed through into official government policy and you know particularly is the treasury our finance ministry actually well behind this now um no not necessarily and are we still seeing proposals from the government for devastating infrastructure projects that will make the situation even worse uh, yes unfortunately we are there is a need for us to keep pushing for the changes in policy that will be needed. But, you know, um, I think the thinking has started to change and that's welcome. And I think actually you see a huge you know, resurgence of um, public mood about this. I mean, just in the last year, I think that, I mean, the pandemic has made a difference as well. You know, the astonishing thing, there has been a palpable shift in the zeitgeist over the last year. And it's, it's true, certainly in the UK, but I hear it from other countries as well. To give you an idea, I mean, at the Wildlife Trust, we actually, uh, we've got 46 local wildlife trusts across the UK. We actually run more nature reserves than McDonald's has got restaurants in the UK, a thousand more. And it's uh, truly astonishing. And uh, we estimate that 60% of the British population live within a three mile walk or cycle ride of a wildlife trust nature reserve. And we've seen a huge increase in the number of people uh, visiting and discovering those nature reserves during uh, lockdown. And uh, we have seen a, a real uh, desire for people to connect to nature. We've even seen a 2000% increase on people visiting wildlife trust webcams from our nature reserves over the last year. So I think people have come to realize how important nature is, their daily dose of nature, how important it is for people's physical and mental well-being. And there is a, a real mood shift now and people saying we've got to bring nature back into our lives, put nature into recovery. And that's good for our uh, physical and mental and economic well-being, as well as good for nature in its own right. The wildlife trusts have nearly 900,000 supporters across the UK, while in Ireland, our biggest wildlife charity has around 15,000 supporters. And even when you factor in our differences in population, that's still at least seven times the support for wildlife charities in the UK compared to Ireland. So why do you think engagement in nature is so much higher in the UK than in Ireland? Well, I reckon people could write PhDs about this car, um, but and it would they'd be fascinating to read. But I think there's probably two reasons. I mean, uh, it's it's widely recognised sort of amongst political scientists that really our uh, what I would think is rather crazy uh, uh, electoral system in this country, uh, which which is uh, you know first past the post, and uh, meaning that our governments have been dominated by one of two parties uh, over. Uh, uh, many many decades actually means it's quite hard for sort of minority issues to kind of work through the political system in 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 some sometimes the way that you might in, in countries with proportional representation that are used to coalition governments and so actually as a result of that uh, we've seen uh, British public actually has have set up and joined and, and got behind what were once called single issue groups. I mean, I've, I never sort of accept that that's what we are, uh, but actually organisations that are really focused on pushing a particular agenda that perhaps doesn't work so well in a, in a political context. So it's no coincidence, I think, that actually the UK has often been home to some of the world's biggest uh, environmental organisations uh, that have been set up, you know, to kind of counter the fact that the environment doesn't do very well historically in our political system. I think the other point is we are, I said before, you know, we're one of the most nature depleted countries anywhere in the world. And I think, um, actually, if nature is in a pretty decent state where you are, or, or there's at least there's a sense that it's in a pretty decent state, then um, people might think we don't need to work so hard to protect it or put it into restoration. And um, I think in the UK, a lot of people kind of accept you only have to look around you when you see all our 
motorways and all our um, industrial parks and so on, then people think, hang on, this isn't right. We need to put nature into recovery. Uh, my own experiences in Ireland is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, it's a sort of a, an economy that sort of has that a bit more of that connection to nature is my sense of it. So maybe uh, that's why there hasn't been such a sort of desire to think, right, well, we've got to, we've all got to get involved in this. Having said that, sometimes that can be quite um, superficial, of course, and sometimes the countryside might look uh, clean and green. But actually behind it, you've lost that abundance of species or there's a lot of phosphate, phosphates being put on the land or a lot of chemicals being put on the land. So um, even in the wonderful green isle that is Ireland, uh, obviously, uh, it might not be the story might not be as positive as perhaps it sometimes looks. Yeah, our, our beekeepers here have sometimes referred to rural Ireland as green deserts. But I think you have given us some inspiration to call for more wildlife reserves here in Ireland. My old friend Craig Bennett, thank you for joining us here on Down to Earth. Thank you. Stay tuned as coming up next, Norman Crowley will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, entrepreneur Norman Crowley joins us on Down to Earth. Welcome, Norman. Hey, good to be here. Thanks. Norman, I hope you're not offended by this, but I've sometimes referred to you as the Elon Musk of Ireland, without the drama, of course, because you're a serial entrepreneur having started and sold three businesses by the age of 40, and several of your businesses are focused on climate solutions. So what was your aha moment when you decided to go into environmental entrepreneurship? Um, I guess during the 2000s, when we were we were building another business, but we watched an inconvenient truth, and I don't know what it was that triggered it for us um, in that, but we became kind of obsessed with it, and we used to meet quite a lot of scientists and discuss it, um, and then when we sold that business in 2008, it was a kind of no-brainer to get into climate change, I guess. Uh, I heard you were also inspired by a UK investor named George Pogue, who now runs the Global Warming Mitigation Project. Can you tell me more about George and his influence on you? Yeah, George um, George and I set up a business together called The Cloud, and we used to meet um, in coffee shops and talk about starting it. And then uh, when he when we worked together, he would have all these scientists over to his house. And at the time, global warming wasn't really on anybody's radar, but uh, he would invite us for dinner. Um, and, you know, we just learned more and more about it. Um, but we we took a different view to what a lot of people took. So a lot of people took the view, the only way to solve this problem is to live minimally um, and live the simple life. And the problem with the human race is, you know, we didn't get to this point by living simply and living minimally, right? Generation after generation have wanted to improve and hand on better to their children. And so we're not really designed to sit in the dark with the thermostats turned down, you know? And what we felt at the time was that there was just so much new technology, solar, electric vehicle, meatless meats um, that offered that we could live not minimally, but we could live as maximally as we always wanted, um, but, but with these new technologies. And that kicked off a, um, a kind of slightly contrarian view in the climate change movement. That's a much more progressive view and a view that we believe will win out in the end because it plays to the more baser human instincts that we have. You've been somewhat critical of campaign tactics like those of Extinction Rebellion in the past, calling it more of the same, let's just say, excrement than, that hasn't worked. So what, <laughs> what exactly do you mean by this? And, and where do you think advocacy groups like Extinction Rebellion should be focusing their efforts? Um, well, well, first thing to say is that we, we believe Greta Thunberg is amazing and we have quotes from her on, in our office and stuff and we, we're a huge admirer. But we believe that it's not very solution focused. It's their approach is to pressure government, um, but government have shown themselves across the world to be quite resilient about not working towards climate change. And there's slow progress on that at the moment, but not enough. Um, whereas our view is 
look at the numbers. And when we talk to a lot of environmental evangelists, they can't even, they can't quote you numbers, right? Whereas we look at the numbers and we look at like global warming isn't about social justice, right? Like don't, don't take that as me being against social justice. I'm very pro social justice, but one is a scientific problem. And a lot of people conflate that scientific problem with either a socialist view um, or, or lots of other views. And we can't afford to do that. Like this is a science problem, right? There's too much CO2 going into the atmosphere. Um, and the only way to fix that is to understand the science and to chip away at it, which is what we do. Um, but conflating it with other issues is, is really, we think dangerous, right? Because it's distracting. Um, here's what here's a problem fix a problem here's what I think is dangerous though Norman from where I sit I see heavily resourced vested interests lobbying politicians and governments constantly to maintain business as usual and prevent implementation of the things we need to address climate change so are you really suggesting that we don't need to expend any effort trying to change the political system or politicians and that we can just sit back and let industry and companies solve this problem um, well, the way you put it, no, but um, <laughs> the way I put it, um, so we, first of all, lobbying politicians, like all the groups have been doing, has been a complete waste of time so far. Um, very little has been won in over 40 years, right? Um, and whereas if you look at something like Tesla, and I know Tesla has its detractors, but if you break it down into CO2 out of the atmosphere, this is a company that has achieved more than anybody else, right? And so, yes, and it's not, there are a couple of things happening. Oil companies, and I'm no fan of oil companies, are moving very quickly now away from oil towards renewable energy. Companies like BP have made massive commitments on renewable investment. And we can all say it's not enough, right? And nothing is ever enough um, in, when it comes to climate change because we're so far behind. But at the same time, you look at their movement and how fast they're moving. And a couple of them have also left all these kind of nasty lobby groups that they've all been members of for years. <clears throat> and so that's, uh, that's another big change that's happened. But I'm no fan of these companies. But is it better to throw stones at these guys or is it better like our businesses do to go in and get them to reduce their energy um, usage and their CO2 output? Like we have one client in the US that we've reduced their, um, their energy consumption by $100 million annually, right? And is it not better to, to do that type of approach where working with these people now some of them we would absolutely refuse not to work with but many of them we would work with to get them to turn and is that not a better way of doing this than trying to use guilt and shame and politicians who've never done anything in this regard to do it and so we feel this is a more productive thing the other side of that is like we're working with schools at the moment and rather than saying to schools hey, you know, um, you should just feel guilty as children, right? And ch children at the moment feel this massive guilt over climate change, even though they didn't do it, they didn't cause it at all. And our message to them is very different. It's like, look how exciting solar energy is. Look how it works. Look how amazing it is and transformational it is. Look at this electric car, look how cool it is, right? And wouldn't you want one of these? So that that generation can feel optimism rather than anger and shame and guilt. Yeah, you've definitely worked hard to make climate change a cool experience. You built the first visitor center in the world dedicated to climate change in 2018, the Cool Planet Experience in Powers Court, County Wicklow, which is a place I've spent a lot of time. What motivated you to undertake a project like that, which would probably never deliver the kind of profits you've been accustomed to in, in your other businesses? Yeah, and look, profit follows purpose in our world, right? Purpose first, and then profit comes from that. If it comes the other way around, we don't like that, and it's not how we operate. Um, so why we did it was back to this thing about we looked at our children, and we looked at the weight of guilt that we were putting on them, and um, and what the effect that was having on them, and the paralysis that that it was generating. And we just said, no, this is not acceptable. There are so many exciting things. And also from their point of view, for their careers, 
rather than joining yet another investment bank, isn't it much better for Irish kids and kids internationally to want to become engineers and environmental lawyers um, and and things like that, you know? And so it was to inspire that. And like in in 2019, we had 50,000 people going through um, Cool Planet experience in only its second year. So that message of optimism clearly hit a chord with people. Your latest project, Electrify, is both retrofitting classic cars to run on electricity and developing your own high-end electric vehicle with a factory based in Ireland. Now, Ireland isn't known as a great car manufacturing country, though there has been three cars produced on the island, most notably the DeLorean made famous in Back to the Future. How do you envision your car business defying the odds and surviving in a country with such high manufacturing costs? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so step one is to manufacture something very expensive. So that's following the kind of Tesla playbook, which is that when you're learning the ropes and getting people to uh, up to speed, um, you know, people who work in the factory and getting them used to the automotive sector, then you need something that's very expensive. Um, and so the first one we're launching uh, under the Ava brand is going to be like 1.2 to 2 million. Um, and so it's designed really for the high-end client. Um, and But also it has the lowest carbon footprint of any EV that's ever been built. And so out of that, if you think about the wider mission though, <clears throat> there's 1.4 billion vehicles in the world. And every year we add another 60 million vehicles to that. Um, so if we're going to wait around for all of those to be new electric vehicles, it's going to be far too long and we're not going to impact climate enough. And so the, the subplot of Electrify is to electrify existing vehicles as well, not just classic cars. So we're doing classic cars in the beginning and it's very good to, to capture the imagination and pay the bills, but longer term, um, we're going to retrofit um, much more traditional vehicles. And in fact, we're in negotiations at the moment with a very large manufacturer to retrofit up to 200 vehicles a day to electric. Yeah. So, so this, it starts off as quite a glamorous project to capture the imagination, but it ends with a serious climate impact. So someone could bring their old Ford Focus in and you could convert it to an electric yeah. Ford Focus. And, and Ultimately, yeah. We need, in order to make that economical, um, first of all, we need to up our skills. So we couldn't do that now. The Ford Focus would end up costing about 60,000 euros. But, um, so it would be a really expensive one. But over time, as battery costs drop and they continue to drop very quickly, and as our skill set increases, we can do that. And there are... There's a company in Paris, for instance, that can take a Fiat 500 and make it electric for a reasonable amount of money, um, although the range is very short. Um, so there are, this is happening and it's happening in India, like tuk-tuks have gone electric now in India. Um, so it's happening all over the place and we're leading that. But what's fascinating about some of the projects that are in negotiation at the moment is they're actually with tier one automotive companies, right? So tier one automotive, the biggest companies in the world are talking to us about projects. So it's an amazing Irish story. Do you think we have the skill set to be able to take on this kind of work here? Yeah, definitely. Because the fantastic thing about an electric vehicle, like if you go to Germany and you, you go to the Daimler factory and you realize that they have a hundred years of experience in the internal combustion engine, right? But the, the electric vehicle is much more analogous to software and applications than it is to an internal combustion engine. And so we in Ireland have huge expertise in that area. And the other thing that we found is because of Brexit, the UK car industry is under massive pressure. And um, what we're getting is a lot of Irish people who are top of their game in the UK automotive industry coming home. Like if you take Mike Keane, our director of engineering, and he was director of engineering with um, Williams Advanced Engineering in the UK and built some of the most prestigious electric vehicles in the last seven or eight years. Or Philip Roach, our head of operations, used to work in McLaren, you know. And so these are serious operators coming back to Ireland. 
You're known for selling your businesses about 10 years uh, after you start them, but you haven't done that with things like Crowley Carbon, despite receiving generous offers. What would you like your legacy to be, Norman? Yeah, you know, we don't really think about it as legacy. I guess the word legacy to me makes me think about kind of prideful or boastful, um, but maybe that's just my interpretation of it. But it's, you know, for us, it's about getting climate change the results, you know. Um, job number one, suck CO2 out of the atmosphere to protect our children, you know, and, uh, and everything leads towards that now, you know. Uh, Bill Gates uh, had some similar views to you when he ran Microsoft about the importance of of technology in solving this. And now he's asking for governments to get more involved and also arguing for technologies like nuclear power and and carbon capture, as you mentioned there, sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. What do you think about the need to invest in those kind of more hotly debated technologies? Um, On paper, um, we, on paper and in reality, SWB, solar, wind and battery, um, solves the problem and we'd prefer to do that so I wouldn't agree with nuclear I respect Bill Gates quite a lot and so maybe he knows more than I do on it but you know anyone who watched Chernobyl and and more recently like I'm quite close to what's going on in Fukushima right and when these things when these things blow they're a nightmare for 30 40 50 years and and we don't seem to be able to control them and so there is a fascinating thing happening in the US at the moment with some cutting edge technology around micro nuclear, where you have these tiny nuclear plants, uh, like really tiny. And, and that to me would seem to make sense because at least if they go, they're gonna go small. Um, whereas, and the other reality of nuclear is we have two projects in Europe at the moment that are years behind and billions over budget. And so never mind any philosophical debate about nuclear. We so we don't seem to be able to build the things anyway. So what's the point in talking about it? Well, I'm really excited to see how Electrify develops over the coming years. My thanks to Norman Crowley for letting us into his green life. Thanks, Carl. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my producer, Alex Rousseau, for this episode of Down to Earth. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcast at Newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. Next week, as the ancient mariner once said, there's water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. We'll be exploring water quality at home and abroad. But until then, stay curious.